Well, does the love of God thrill you? Does it stir you to the core of your soul? Does it impact the way that you live your life day in and day out? Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Renee and the kids and I, we had the opportunity to spend some time in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And one night we decided we would go downtown to take a look at the Christmas lights. And as we were out and about, we encountered a woman who was taking up donations for veterans. She asked Renee, do you have any change that you could spare? And so Renee took out her little change purse and she emptied a significant amount of change in her hand. Well, as would be expected, the woman was holding a cup, and so Renee took her change, and she emptied it into the, the woman's cup. Now, in a situation like that, you expect to hear the clinging and clanging of change, but in this case, we heard the sound kerplunk. You see, the lady's donation cup, it wasn't a donation cup at all. It was her soft drink. <laughs> well, as you can imagine... My sweet wife who allowed me to tell that story. <laughs> As you can imagine, uh, Renee was embarrassed. She began to profusely apologize to the lady, saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. Well, the lady, lady then told us something that was very telling. She says this, oh, honey, don't worry about it. She says, you're a human being, and human beings make mistakes. And Jesus accepts us and forgives us all. Well, in the very next breath, the woman begins to comment on just how beautiful our children are. And she said, you know, I've been hounding my son for years to try to go out and get a girl pregnant so that I could be a grandmother. <laughs> and all accepting, sin-tolerating love doesn't that version of God's love just thrill you? Doesn't it move you just want to risk everything that you've got in order to go to some of the most difficult places in the world to tell people about God's love? Of course it doesn't. That's not even enough to motivate you to get you off your couch to go tell your neighbor about God's love. See, that's the version of God's love that the world propagates. It is a, a, a sentimental therapeutic, feel-good, fluffy, grandmother-like love that is grounded in nothing more than the human imagination. It is a love that ignores the holiness of God, the wretchedness of sin, the dreadful enemy that we all have, and that enemy is death, and the great lengths that our God would go to in order to rescue a people from that same in sin and death. In short, it ignores the greatest love story that's ever been told. See, God's love is meant to thrill us, to captivate us, to stir us. But if we're honest with ourselves, all too often it doesn't stir us and captivate us and move us. Instead of experiencing a passionate thrill, often we experience more of an icy chill when it comes to God's love. Why is that? Why is that? Well, for some of us, it's because we've adopted a cheap version of God's love that the world propagates, kind of like the woman in Gatlinburg. In short, uh, what that means is just that we have a bad theology about God's love. For others of us, it's not that we have a bad theology about God's love. It's, it's that we fail to think deeply and personally about what God has revealed about His love in His Word. And still, for others of us, it's because 
we're unconverted, meaning God's love can't thrill a person if their heart is hard towards God. And so today, this morning, by God's grace, I want us to try to kill those three birds with one stone by taking a fresh look at God's love in John chapter 3, spending most of our time, of course, in the familiar verse, John 3, 16. The main point I want you to take away from, from this today is this. Gaze deeply and personally at the peculiar love of God in the giving of His Son and be thrilled to the core of your being. Now, most professing Christians, I think, can quote John 3.16 with pinpoint accuracy. But many of those same Christians may be unaware that, that this John 3.16 actually occurs in a conversation that Jesus is having with a master teacher in Israel, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, our, our, our text today shows us he was a Pharisee, which means that he was a part of the strictest sect in Judaism, a sect that was known for being hyper zealous for their own traditions, as well as hyper-zealous for the law of Moses, to be obedient to the law of Moses. It also shows us that he was part of the religious elite. It says that he was a ruler of Israel, which means that he was, he was a part of, actually, a member of the Sanhedrin, which would be kind of equivalent to the Supreme Court in America. But instead of adjudicating the law of, of America, he would, they would adjudicate the, the law of Moses. So needless to say, Nicodemus was religiously devout, to the utmost degree. Surely if anybody in Israel knew God and knew the way to heaven, it would be jolly old Saint Nick. Right? Well, wrong. See, Nicodemus was entangled in the most popular false religion in the history of humanity. Salvation by human effort. That is salvation by works. That is, if a person is morally good and participates in certain religious rituals, then that person will earn heaven. They'll be rewarded with heaven. Well, Jesus in John chapter 3 throws the wettest of blankets on Nicodemus' false system of salvation by introducing him to the radical message of salvation by grace alone. As we move into John 3 this morning, we are going to make four observations about God's love and why that God's love should thrill us. Four observations about God's love. First, why should God's love thrill you? Because it pursues and resurrects the spiritually dead. It pursues and resurrects the spiritually dead. You see, God doesn't wait around like a schoolgirl, hoping that someone will, will come to her and invite her to the middle school dance. No, He pursues and resurrects those who naturally hate Him, those who are naturally at war with Him, those who naturally are rebelling against Him. How does He do this? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus said it is through the new birth or regeneration. What is that? John Frame will give us a good definition of the new birth or regeneration. He says this, it is a sovereign act of God beginning a new spiritual life in us. Now I want you to notice what Frame says here. He says that, that there is only one actor in regeneration in the new birth and that actor is God. It is His will, period. And if we experience it, that's exactly what it is. It's an experience, not something that's because of us. That's exactly Jesus' point in John chapter 3 as He uses these two metaphors, this metaphor of birth and this metaphor of wind. In verse 3, Jesus says this. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
which is the same thing as being born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is being very careful in his use of this metaphor of birth here. Birth obviously points to new life. New life. Let me ask you a question. Can a baby who's come freshly out of her, her mother's womb, can she point to or trace, can we trace any decision that that baby made in the past to that baby's new life in the present? Of course not. Of course not. The baby's birth and life is conditioned upon the will of another, right? Their mother, their father, God. In verse 8, Jesus, Jesus is communicating a similar point by using the metaphor of wind. He says this, he says that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does Jesus mean here? Well, he means that, that we experience the wind. We hear it. We feel it. But we don't have any control over it, do we? See, Jesus is saying, just as your will contributed nothing to your physical birth, and just as your will contributed nothing to your, contributes nothing to your experience of the wind, so your will contributes nothing to your spiritual rebirth, this new birth that is called regeneration. You see, he's saying that there is a condition to the new birth, and that condition fundamentally has nothing to do with your willpower, Nicodemus, with your works, Nicodemus, with your moral effort, Nicodemus. The condition is, is that you must be born again. And that is something that is willed by God the Father and accomplished by the Holy Spirit, not you. This is what James says. This is why James says in James 1.18, speaking of the new birth, he says, of his own will, that's God's, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God's will brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. That's speaking of the gospel. The gospel. Now, if you have experienced the new birth, it is solely because God has pursued you and renewed you and wooed you to himself. Now, maybe you're listening this morning and you're thinking, okay, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. I thought that the condition to salvation was that I had to believe in Jesus, which is an act of the will. I mean, isn't that what John 3.16 says? Absolutely, that's what John 3.16 says. But don't miss the point that John 3.16 comes after Jesus' discussion on regeneration, the new birth. A little later in John, Jesus explains why regeneration is necessary before believing in Him is even possible. In John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one has the ability to come to me unless a condition is met, and that condition that is that the Father who sent me draws him. That's regeneration. See, the issue, what Jesus says, the issue has to do with inability, and it is an inability that we are responsible for. Sin has so hardened and enslaved the human heart that no human being will ever trust in Jesus without the heart being softened and liberated through the new birth, through regeneration. That's what Jesus means by, he says, unless the Father who sent me draws them. Think about it this way. In John chapter 11, you may remember this scene, that Jesus comes to the, the tomb of Lazarus, who has been dead for four days. And he says, Lazarus, come out! Now, in order for Lazarus to 
do what Jesus said, he would have to exercise his will, wouldn't he? He'd have to get up and he'd have to walk out of the tomb. But listen, listen to this. Can, was that even possible? Was that even possible for Lazarus to actually get up and come out of the tomb if God had not first breathed life into his nostrils again? Right? And so the, the new birth was necessary, uh, is necessary in regard to this. Ephesians 2 tells us that just like Lazarus was, was, was physically dead, that we are spiritually dead until God makes us alive. You see, our faith doesn't make us alive. God makes us alive, and saving faith is the result. It is evidence that God has pursued us and resurrected us through regeneration. Now, you know that Disney has made millions and millions of dollars off of God's story here, borrowing this storyline? Snow White. Remember the story? Snow White takes a bite of the poisonous apple. It lulls her into, into death, the curse of death. She needs a rescue that is outside of herself. She needs love's first kiss. And so you know the story, Prince Charming, who had fallen in love with Snow White previously, he comes and he pursues her in her death. She's lying there in her, in her glass casket and he bends down and he gives her love's first kiss and her eyes pop open. She comes alive. She sees Prince Charming and she embraces him and they live happily ever after. What Jesus is saying to us in John 3, that you and I, we lie spiritually dead, needing a rescue that is outside of us. And our lover God, who loved us before the foundation of the world, has come to us with love's first kiss to make us alive through regeneration so that we might live joyfully ever after in relationship with Him. If you are in Christ, God's pursuing and resurrecting love should thrill you. Well, moving on in verse 9, we see that Nicodemus, he can't accept this message of salvation by grace alone. He says in unbelief, how can these things be? You see, he can't believe that salvation is all God and none him. And so in verses 14 and 15, Jesus continues to pull the carpet out from underneath Nicodemus' false system of salvation by making a connection between a familiar event in Israel's history and the salvation that Jesus would accomplish through his crucifixion. He says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so, the son, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is referring to an event that took place in Israel's history that came from uh, Numbers 21. See, Israel was in the wilderness. They had rebelled against God. They were speaking out against God. And so in judgment, God sent fiery serpents to bite them. Many people in Israel died. Well, when they realized, the people who were alive, their sin, they came to Moses and they said, Moses, oh, please, please pray to God that he'll take away these fiery serpents from us. And so the result of that was that God told Moses, he says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. See, the venom of those serpents was coursing through their veins, and there was nothing that they could do about it. Any moment, they would be dead, and they knew it. But then Moses comes out. He comes out with this big bronze serpent lifted high on a pole, and he said this, God has promised that if you look to this, you will be saved. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this historical event 
was a type or a shadow of the salvation that I will bring by being lifted up on the cross, by being lifted up out of the grave, and by being lifted up into heaven. And whoever, and I mean whoever, regardless of how messed up you are, regardless of how sinful your record is, whoever looks to me will be saved. They will have eternal life. And so as we come to John 3.16, Jesus is explaining what makes this eternal life even possible. Number two, why should God's love thrill you? Because His love drove Him to an unprecedented act to crush His Son for His enemies. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son this word so is small, but it is highly significant. It has a double meaning. It refers to both the degree of God's love or the intensity of God's love, as well as it refers to the manner in which God shows His love. So what, to what degree did God love the world? Well, to the degree that He gave up the greater for the lesser. The most precious, the most valuable for the least valuable. How did God love the world? Well, He gave His only Son. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 6-8. through 8. He says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, would, would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, Paul goes so far to, to make the connection that sinners are enemies of God, are enemies of God. God the Father sent His beloved Son to die for His morally bankrupt enemies. This is an unprecedented, one-of-a-kind, never-foreseen kind of love. To further grasp the weight of this, those of you in this room who are parents, let me ask you a question. Would you give up one of your children... If it was possible, would you give up one of your children in order to save a person like Hitler or Osama bin Laden if they were still alive? Well, of course you wouldn't. Why? Because the value of your child's life is not worth giving up for a wicked person, right? But here's the rub. Do you know that the moral distance that separates you and I from Hitler and Osama bin Laden is minuscule in comparison to the moral dist distance that separates us from God? You and I, we wouldn't give up our children for someone that is relatively close to us on the moral spectrum. <laughs> but God would give up His infinitely precious Son for us who was on the opposite end of the moral spectrum? Think about it this way. I want you to think about some act of evil that goes on in the world that just enrages you. Right? Maybe for you, maybe it's like the the abuse, whether that be physical or sexual, of a child, that it enrages you. Now, I want you to think about the intensity of that anger, and I want you to multiply it by an infinity, and you'll have a better idea of how God feels about your sin. He hates all sin that much. But yet, instead of crushing you under the weight of His anger, He crushed His own Son under the weight of that anger. If you are in Christ... God's unprecedented love in crushing His Son to save you should thrill you to no end. Number three, why should God's love thrill you? Because it is more costly than you ever dared to imagine. 
It's more costly than you ever dare to imagine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, God's love is not some sentimental feeling that is self-serving and stagnant. God's love at the center of it is actually the giving of himself. And the supreme demonstration of that is the giving of his son. Now, I don't want to pretend that we can even come close to comprehending just how costly that was. But tonight, or today, I want us to, to consider some of the cost of the incarnation and the crucifixion. Some of the cost. The incarnation, of course, is what we celebrate at Christmas. That the eternal Son of God took on a human nature. He was totally God and totally man. And so when we look at those depictions of, of Jesus in a feeding trough in a manger, what we get to see there is God with us. It's a mind-boggling reality. The God-man. Listen to how Paul describes the incarnation in Philippians 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that means he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, to use his privileges as God in order to serve his own interests. Didn't count equality God with a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not his deity. How did he empty himself? He, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now let's stop right there. Do you realize just that, how costly that is? <laughs> that God the Son, Son had never had a belly that ached in hunger, but now he was subjected to hunger. That he had never had a mouth that was dry and parched because he was thirsty, but now he was subjected to thirst. That he had never been exhausted or sleepy, but now he was subjected to fatigue. He had never had a pounding headache or a violent bout with the flu, but now he subjected himself to sickness. But, Paul continues in verse 8 to go even farther. He says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God the Son had never been able to die, but now he was subjected to death. He had never experienced physical pain, but now he experienced the excruciating pain of having lacerations opened up on his back because of the flogging he endured. He experienced the excruciating pain of having the thorns of the crown penetrating into his temple. He experienced the, the, the nails penetrating his hands. He had never experienced shortness of breath, but now on the cross, as it impeded his ability to breathe, he subjected himself to suffocation. Oh, how costly on a physical level the incarnation was. Now, I know that there are some of you in this room today who are, who are undergoing cancer treatments, whether that be through chemotherapy or radiation or, or both, and it is taking a toll on your body. You're exhausted beyond what I can imagine. You're experiencing sickness beyond what most of us in this room can can even comprehend. But what would, you, what would you think if a perfectly healthy person without even a trace of cancer willingly subjected themselves to those same cancer treatments that you're undergoing? They experience the same exhaustion as you, the same uh, sickness that you're experiencing. You would say, you are crazy. Why would you trade your perfect health for this? 
But yet that is a dim picture of what Christ has done for us physically through the incarnation and the cross. In His humiliation, He has entered into, into the brokenness of our humanity so that He might save us from the brokenness of our humanity through His suffering and death on the cross. 1 John 4.10 tells us this. This is the other side of the coin of how costly it was. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word, but if you are a Christian, you need to know what this word means. It has to do with the satisfaction of wrath, that, that Jesus has satisfied the righteous wrath of the Father for our sins through His suffering and death on the cross and has reconciled us to God. When, when Jesus hung on that cross, the Scriptures tell us that from noon until 3 o'clock, that darkness plagued the land. That He was under the curse of God for us. Every sin of His people throughout all of human history was counted as belonging to Him. And the crushing weight of the infinite wrath of God that would have come down on His people in hell was now being, coming down on His own perfect, precious Son. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by God. We have no ability to fathom just how costly that was. But we can get at least some idea as we compare the fearless Jesus in the three years of ministry of His life and the trembling and terror Jesus that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. As He stared in the face of the imminent wrath of His Father that was about to consume Him, it caused Him such intense distress that blood dripped from His pores. He fell on His face and He prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He did that for you. See, God's love is more costly than you ever dared to imagine, and that should thrill you if you are in Christ. Number four, why should God's love thrill you? Because His love accomplished the most stunning rescue mission in the history of the world. For God so loved the world, Jew and Gentile, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now perish here doesn't mean physical death. It means eternal destruction, eternal ruin, eternal lostness. Jesus is referring to the uncomfortable subject of hell. And as uncomfortable as, as the subject of hell might be to you, we have to face the reality that Jesus spoke about it a lot. And He used vivid language to describe it. Let me just give you a couple of instances. He says it is a place of outer darkness, of unquenchable fire, of eternal torment, where people gnash their teeth in unimaginable agony, where there is no escaping even to warn relatives. Why would Jesus talk about hell so much and with such vivid language? So that He could play a prank on us? So that He could get a rise out of us, kind of like a horror movie does? No. To warn us of the sobering reality that hell is real and that it is our default eternal destination because of sin. 
We stand guilty in the courtroom of a holy God, and hell is the sentence for our crimes against Him. So what in the world can change that? What can erase our guilt? Be good? Try harder? Start coming to church more? Get baptized? No. If those things can't erase guilt in a human court of law, what makes us think that they can erase our guilt before an infinitely just and holy God? So what can erase our guilt? As the old hymn goes, nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, when Jesus hung on that cross, he accepted responsibility for the sin and guilt of his people, and he satisfied their sentence, hell, on their behalf. We broke God's law, Jesus paid the fine. And when somebody pays your fine, what that means is that you are no longer responsible to pay for it. You are free to walk out of the courtroom, but that does not mean you're free to walk into heaven yet. You see, you need something else. You need righteousness. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What that means is that Jesus, he obeyed his father for the entirety of his life flawlessly, even to the point of shedding his blood in the most difficult act of human obedience to ever take place in the history of the world. He was sinless. His record was perfect. He was righteous. And one of the electrifying truths of the gospel is, is that when you trust in Jesus, God the Father counts the very righteousness of Jesus as belonging to you. As if you had flawlessly kept God's law in thought and word and deed for the entirety of your life. And on that basis, you are justified in God's sight. That means you are declared righteous in His sight. And your eternal destination is changed from the hell that you deserve to the heaven that you don't. And on that basis, there is a lot to be thrilled about. Now, eternal life in this passage refers not only to the quantity of life, but also the quality of life. It literally means life of the age to come. And when you consider, it says, have eternal life. That's a present active verb have eternal life. That means that, it, it, it means that the life of the age to come is in the present as well as in the future. Now, we don't have time to unfold all that eternal life means for us this morning, but let me just whet your appetite a little bit. A couple observations that I wrote down. What does eternal life mean? Well, it means that the divine life of Christ dwells in you if you are in Him, dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. And because of that, you will increasingly walk in holiness and increasingly mortifies sin, which means put it to death. It means that living in this broken world is the closest that you will ever get to hell. It means that you no longer have a reason to fear death. It means that if you die physically today, your spirit will be alive with the Lord today. It means that at Jesus' second coming, your decomposed body will be resurrected and transformed into a glorious body and reunited with your spirit. It means that you will live on a renewed earth, free from sin and curse in the immediate presence of God. It means that the most painful wound that has ever afflicted you, whether, whether physical or psychological, whether by your own sin or the sin of another, will be completely and fully and wholly healed. It means that abuse, whether that be physical or verbal or sexual, will be no more. Cancer will be no more. Heart attacks will be no more. Hospitals will no longer be needed. Police officers and firefighters and EMT workers and doctors will no longer be necessary. And the best part is, is you will see your God face to face. And you will behold the one in whom you were created for. And you will be captivated by his beauty. And every longing of your heart will be satisfied in him. This is eternal life. 
See, God's love has accomplished the most stunning rescue mission in the history of the world. He has rescued you from hell and rescued you to eternal life, and that should thrill you to your bones. As we think about some application this morning, let me first ask you, are you an observer, observer of God's love or are you a recipient of his love? An observer of God's love is someone who stands at a distance and is unaffected by it. Whereas a recipient is someone who, who has actually experienced God's love, first, God's love firsthand and has been changed by it. How can you know for sure that you're a recipient and not a, merely an observer? Well, the answer is, is that you have met Jesus' terms for salvation as laid out in John 3.16. You believe in Him. Now, believing in Him is, is not merely professing to believe in Him. You know, Jesus made it clear that there were going to be plenty of people who professed to believe in Him that were going to end up in hell. In one of the most frightening passages in all the Scriptures, Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then a little bit later, He says to those same people, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And so we better be sure that we understand what Jesus means by believe here. We better be sure that we don't put our own definition on that. We better put Jesus' definition on it. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says this, The time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the two elements of what it means to believe in Jesus. First, he says you must repent. Repent is a genuine turn from sin. A genuine turn from self-centeredness. A genuine turn from self-rule towards God in a posture of submission. It is a revolution that takes place in the heart where one authority is abandoned and another is embraced. Now, if, if you are here today and you are still comfortable with living in your sin, that is not a good sign that you've experienced genuine repentance. If you are, are not actively and desirously seeking to be obedient to God, then that is another good sign that, that you've not experienced genuine repentance. Genuine repentance doesn't mean that you don't sin anymore. What it means, though, is, is that you hate your sin and you desire more than anything to be obedient to God. Second, Jesus says, true belief means to believe in the gospel. What, what is the gospel? Well, it is Jesus who He is and what He's done. That Jesus is God. He said that unless you believe that I am He, which means that's a, an allusion to something that God has said about Himself, I am in the Old Testament. You have to believe that He's God. It means to trust Jesus alone for your salvation. It means that you're relying on His work through His life, death, and resurrection as your only hope to make you right before God. If you still think that God looks favorably on your life apart from Christ, then that is not a good sign that you're genuinely trusting in Him. If you still think that there are other ways to get to God except for Jesus, that is also a not, not a good sign that you are genuinely trusting in Him. Genuine trust means that you say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now maybe you realize today that this level of belief doesn't describe you. And if that is the case, you should be quaking in your boots right now because God's wrath abides on you. But in His kindness, 
He has sustained your life up to this point. He's brought you here today to hear the truth that God loves so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not go to hell, but have eternal life. I plead with you this morning, if that is you, to know, don't neglect this offer of salvation. You're not going to get a better deal. Repent and trust in Christ. Your next breath is not promised. Now, for those of you who you are here and you have believed in Christ, you've been transformed by His love. My hope this morning that this sermon has rekindled a fire within you for His love. As we say oftentimes here at Grace Church, quoting John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I hope that this morning, this, this John 3 has, has caused you to have satisfaction in your God and in His love. So how can you main that, maintain that fire of satisfaction? Of God and His love. Well, first, you need to have good theology, which is another another way to say you need to have a biblical theology. Get your ideas about God from God's Word and not from Hallmark movies. Get your don't build your theology from bad theologians, whether that be Joel Osteen or Creflo Dollar or some people on the streets of Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Or your Uncle Roscoe, who's never opened a book, the book of the Bible, in a day in his life. Build your theology. There's a table right over there with great theology. Go grab some of those books. I encourage you to do that. You need a biblical theology about God and His attributes of sin and of, and of salvation. If you don't understand the character of God and the wretchedness of sin then you are not going to understand salvation and you are certainly not going to be thrilled with the love of God. So have a good biblical theology. Second, it's not enough just to have a good biblical theology. You need to take that good biblical theology and you need to apply it to yourself on a personal level. Theology is not meant to be cold and dry. It is meant to melt our hearts and to change us and to transform us. It is meant to fortify our faith so that we might have hope and peace and joy and experience the love of God. Theology is not to be meant to be held at an intellectual distance. It's meant to be brought near to us and applied on a personal level. So don't let God's love just be a concept to you. Own it as a personal reality that the lover of your soul has pursued you in the cesspool of your sin and has rescued you by paying the greatest price that has ever been paid for anything. And so have a good theology. Apply it to yourself on a personal level. And number three, Tell other people about God's love in the giving of His Son. If you are not telling people about it, that's a good indication that you're not too thrilled about it, which means that it hasn't, it hasn't, it hasn't overtaken you on a personal level. And I would encourage you to go back to the first two points if that's the case. You see, if you're thrilled about something, you can't hold it in. That's what, first Peter, that's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. See, we're not meant to contain the thrill. We're meant to proclaim the thrill of God's love. As we close this morning, I know if you're here today, you know that Christmas times are coming. Wednesday. Right around the corner from us, wherever you spend it, my encouragement to you this morning, wherever you spend it, take time to gaze into that feeding trough and behold God 
and behold His peculiar love for you. Marvel at His unprecedented act of crushing His own Son to save you, His enemy. Try to count the cost of, of the incarnation and the propitiation that, he took, that took place for your sins on that cross. And let your heart melt as you consider of the hell that you would be in without Him and the eternal life that you have because of Him. This is the thrilling love of God. Let's pray. Who has loved us like you, O Lord? No one. Lord, I thank you so much today for your word, for reminding us of just how unprecedented an act your love was for us. Just how costly it was. And just how much of a rescue that has taken place for us. I pray for every heart in here that they would embrace and believe that. And they would experience the thrill this Christmas that comes through embracing that objective reality. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that it would run in our hearts even as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen.